I had already been sick, and we um, essentially got reintroduced and uh, were inseparable starting in the fall of 2009. So um, all through treatment, she was there. And so then you first started dating when you were already sick. So yeah. She's an amazing person uh, and caregiver. Yeah, the best. Um, and then I knew um, coming out of the transplant, if if I was able to achieve remission, um, that, that I absolutely was going to ask her to marry me. This is the James Cancer Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today we have two guests. The first is Don Benson. Don is the Deputy Director of the Division of Hematology here at the James, and Don is one of the world's leading experts on multiple myeloma, which is a blood cancer. There are about 24,000 new cases of multiple myeloma diagnosed every year. In the second half of the podcast, Matt Hare will join us. Matt is one of Don's patients, and Matt has a, has a really inspiring story to share with us. It's a cancer journey story, and it's also a love story. But first, Don will fill us in on multiple myeloma, what it is, and the great advances being made in the treatment of this type of cancer. Welcome, Don, to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. So first, Don, fill us in, what is multiple myeloma? So multiple myeloma is a form of blood cancer, like you mentioned. It's relatively uncommon. It accounts for about 1% of all cancers. It's the second most common form of blood cancer. Myeloma is a form of cancer that starts in the bone marrow, and it's a cancer of your immune system. It's a cancer of cells called plasma cells, which normally function in the body to help you fight off infections. So if the plasma, if your immune system is impacted, that, that does not sound like a, a, good, a good outcome. So it's one of the most common ways that people get diagnosed is because they get recurrent infections or uncommon infections. So their whole immune system is compromised, so it's, they're just more prone to everything. Right, a large part of it. So these are cells that normally make antibodies to help keep you healthy. And when somebody develops myeloma, that whole arm of the immune system becomes dysfunctional. Okay, so what are the symptoms that would lead uh, someone to, to go to a, a cancer center or for a primary care physician to say, hey, this looks like this could be multiple myeloma mm-hmm. or this looks like it could be some sort of blood issue? What are the symptoms and, and how do you then determine what it is? Yeah, so all the symptoms emanate from uh, the, the fundamental cause, the underlying process that's going on. So these plasma cells that we all have in our bone marrow – live in the body. Uh, they don't divide very often. They sit there and live uh, to make antibodies. And if they become myeloma, those cells start dividing. And over time, those cells begin to take up space in the liquid center of the bones, in the bone marrow itself. And as that happens, it crowds out space for the normal cells, uh, where the normal cells would be developing and growing. So people can develop anemia or low blood counts and have fatigue and tiredness and exercise intolerance. As the cells continue to grow, they start to put pressure on the hard calcium-containing bones, and that can cause bone pain or even cause broken bones. And that process can cause calcium to leach out into the blood, and that causes pain and confusion and can even cause irregular heartbeat problems like that. When you say confusion, you mean people's mental abilities? Yeah, people can can become anything from uh, just sort of confused and a little off to to somnolent, sedated, um, 
depending on how high their calcium level is because of this process. And it literally break it, it it grows in the middle of the bone and breaks through to the point where it can break through the bone. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then these cells, because they're part of the immune system, uh, and they're trying to do their job. They're trying to make an antibody. Um, the problem with myeloma is that the needle starts skipping on the record, if you will. So these cells start to make a carbon copy of the same antibody, the same protein. And that can accumulate in the blood and cause kidney problems and problems with other organs as well. Wow. So give us a sense. I, I've talked to you before a little bit about this and about when you first started out doing mm-hmm. this, the the treatment options and the outcomes weren't um, – what they are today. So sort of walk us through what it was like when you started, which I'm not sure how long ago that was, <laughs> 10, 15 years ago. I don't want to date you too much, but walk us through the, the advances and where we are today. Yeah. I, so I got interested in myeloma in the mid-1990s when I was in medical school. And um, I think what drew me to it then and what is still the most fulfilling part of my job now is um, – is, um, it, it's a it's an interesting form of cancer for many reasons. So one of the reasons is we don't really know what the cause is. So it's a, it's one of the only cancers that you don't get from drinking or smoking or it's really unclear why people get it or how people get it. And there's no genetic mutation or inherited or or yeah, it's a good question. So that's one of the things we study in my lab actually. And and the the short answer is no. There there's about a dozen that are candidates but they're not sufficient to cause the disease in every case, like with other cancers. Um, between, you know, if you go back even to the 40s and 50s, um, from, from that period of time through the 1990s, the survival and the outcome of myeloma really didn't change at all. And then in the mid-1990s when and it, we— it was it pretty low? It was around—the average survival was around two or three years. And and I think 1996 was the big inflection point for bone marrow transplants, where that became a very commonly used treatment for people who were eligible to receive it. And that's the first point where we saw survivals improve. Um, if you fast forward to today, uh, the, the advances in survival are mind-boggling. That We went from an average of two to three years now where many patients can live 10 years or more with myeloma. It's still considered to be incurable, though. And one of the interesting things, in my um, opinion, or one, one of the reasons I think it's important and, and why I've dedicated my life to it is uh, it's, it's still rated as um, having the worst quality of life of any cancer by patients. So two big studies recently done, one in the EU, in Europe, and one in the United States. And if you look at um, patients reporting their symptoms, their quality of life, uh, what it's like to have this cancer. In both studies, myeloma was ranked number one as the worst. So we've come a long way, but there's still a lot of work to do. And give us a couple examples of how you've come a long way. I know, I, I believe I'm, the immunotherapy is part of that, along mm-hmm. with the bone marrow transplants. Yeah, so we've, um, we've gone through several um, watershed events, I guess, or revolutions in the treatment of myeloma. We went through a period of time where a number of targeted therapies came out um, from from laboratory research through clinical trials to approval, drugs that target the myeloma cells specifically that will only kill those cells and not kill healthy, normal uh, cells in the body. And now we're well into this era of what they call immune therapy or immunotherapy, using the body's own immune system to kill the myeloma cells, to kill cancer cells. 
So in multiple myeloma in, in, in immune therapy, how does that actually work? There, there's immune therapy, and I, I'm not sure if drugs is the right words, but immune mm-hmm. therapy treatments that are specific to that, that help the, the body, the immune system identify and target those cells. Correct. So you can think about immune therapy two ways. So, so in general, one way is to try to stimulate the immune system or augment the immune system um, to find a process that happens normally and, and step on that gas pedal and try to make it work better. And then um, one of the watershed events uh, about 10 years ago was this realization, this discovery that you can step on the gas all you want. If the brake's still on, the, the car's not going to go. The immune system's not going to function. And so the last 10 years, really the explosion and the validation of immune therapy has been um, treatments, drugs, antibodies that actually release the immune system from inhibition, that take the brakes off the immune system. So it can better, when you say take the brakes off, what, what is it being prevented from doing that it can now do when the brakes are off? So it, it's interesting, right? So if, if you have the flu, for example, if you have an infection, you want your immune system to be able to rev up, to recognize that infection, to kill those bacteria, to kill that virus, whatever. And then you want it to shut down. To know when its job is done. You want it to stop, yeah. right, its job's done. Um, and it's the same thing with cancer, that we, we've come a long way in, in, in strategies to stimulate the immune system, to turn it on. And this recognition that, that many cancers actually use natural off switches to hide from the immune system, to keep the immune system at bay. And so this latest round of discovery in immune therapy has been recognizing you have to release that break to make the immune system function properly. And now we're at the, the, the tip of the spear right now. We can turn it on. We know how to get it off the off, if you will. And, and so now the research is in really increasing the precision of that immune response to target the tumor cells. And you and your lab and your colleagues here at the James are at the forefront of this, right? In terms that's, of clinical trials and treatment and everything. Yes, sir. That's my lab is um, what they call a, a natural killer cell immune therapy lab. So we study a specific immune cell that, that can kill cancer. Uh, T cells are another big component. B cells are another big component. Macrophages. There's a number of immune cells that we can, we can employ to kill cancer cells. And so at the James, all of these different um, specialists, all of these different very subspecialized laboratories are working together to translate these therapies and these ideas into the clinic, into clinical trials. And you have an actual uh, multiple myeloma clinic. We do. So today there's seven docs at the James who specialize exclusively in taking care of people with myeloma. And we have over 5,000 patients in our active care today. Wow. And I take it they come from central Ohio, Ohio all of Ohio, and, and even beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we actually have a worldwide footprint. We, we have patients every month who come from overseas, from as far away as um, New Zealand and um, Saudi Arabia, Russia, China. Um, most of our patients come from Ohio and the contiguous states, but it's really become... Um, a destination center. Okay, that, that's a great overview on where we are. So we're going to take a, a short break, and then we'll be back with Don, and we'll get to meet Matt Hare. Great. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. 
We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back with Don Benson, who's just filled us in on multiple myeloma, what it is, and the advancements in treatment for it. And now let's, I'm going to welcome Matt Hare to the podcast. Matt, we met, I was looking it up, it was 2010, and it was a few months after your bone marrow transplant. So, first of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And it's great to see you again. And give us a sense of, even before that bone marrow transplant, what were the symptoms you were feeling? How did you, what led to your diagnosis and what led you to to Don? Yeah, so I uh, initially was feeling very fatigued, uh, just run down by typical activities that you do during the day, getting ready in the morning and feeling um, like I needed to take a rest after just very, very simple activities. And finally went to my family physician who ran some tests and recommended that I be admitted to the hospital. And it took a couple of weeks to get diagnosed. Um, Originally, um, the belief was that I had another condition. um, And as strange as it is to say, I um, caught pneumonia and ended up in the intensive care unit uh, while I was admitted to the hospital. And there they ran additional testing and were able to find the multiple myeloma and amyloidosis. Wow. So, and you were very young, you were like early 20s, 25. Yeah. So that full should have been full of energy and just starting your career. And here you are just not feeling well. Yeah, exactly. Don, the, the pneumonia that Matt also suffered, would that have been a, from the multiple myeloma? Yeah, I think so. I think Matt's presentation with the exception of his age, uh, Matt's presentation is pretty common that people can get these insidious, just kind of general, having a bad day, don't feel good, maybe have a little back pain, and that can last for weeks or months uh, until somebody recognizes this isn't garden variety fatigue, this isn't garden variety, you didn't pull a muscle, this is something much worse. Right. And Matt, you mentioned you had multiple myeloma and amyloidosis. So I don't know if, if which of you wants to explain to everyone what is amyloidosis. And Matt just gestured toward Don, the expert. So we'll let Don fill us in on, on what is amyloidosis. So amyloidosis is a rare disease. It's actually a family of diseases. Um, there's about 2,000 cases a year in the United States, probably underdiagnosed, though. There, there is a type of amyloidosis that can, um, can present with myeloma. And um, you remember I mentioned the myeloma cells make a protein they shouldn't make. So in, in some cases, that protein has an ability to stick to tissue. And in Matt's case, the protein that was being made by the myeloma cells had an affinity for the kidneys, for the liver, for the heart. And over time, that accumulates into a protein called amyloid. And so... Part of his presentation was that his kidneys were failing, and part of his presentation was that, that his liver was failing. And that was from the combination of the multiple myeloma and the amyloidosis. Correct. And Correct. by a coincidence, we have Yvonne Effabera scheduled to be on the podcast soon, and she is the, the head of the amyloidosis mm-hmm. clinic at the James and your colleague. So we'll learn more about that in a in a future episode of the podcast. So so Matt, once you were diagnosed, then what? Is that when you first saw Don and and 
Yeah, I was at uh, another hospital um, where I had been admitted and kept having recurrent infections, couple stints in the intensive care unit, and um, ultimately wanted to get back to Columbus and fortunately was able to find um, that the James had a, a, a tremendous multiple myeloma program. And my dad actually had reached out to Don via email, I believe, and Don uh, quickly reached back out, um, started looking at my records. And as soon as I was able to be discharged from the hospital, we immediately came to the James and started um, transitioning my care here. So what's the time frame? That would have been sometime in 08 or 09? Uh, that was 2009. Okay. And that's when you, and where were you living at the time? Uh, I was living in Columbus. Oh, okay. Yep. But you were being, initially you were treated at a different hospital and realized I need to be at the James because this is where the experts are. Yep, absolutely. Okay. So tell me about your first meeting with Don and, and what that was like and what was the plan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the first meeting was very memorable and I see him blushing already. Uh, <laughs> You know, my family and I had gone through a couple of months of being in the hospital, um, and I still had a lot of questions about my disease and my care. And Don spent uh, two hours with us, I think, and we had taken up all the chairs in the room, and Don sat on the floor and just went over and over um, the 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 disease in general, and then also what the plan of attack for my particular uh, circumstances were going to be. And it's probably important to have your family members there because you're probably a little bit in shock. I mean, you're being diagnosed with cancer and it's, I mean, you're, and you're hearing all this information. I mean, that, that, that's, that is tough. That's a tough day. Yeah. It was definitely helpful to have some, another pair of ears there to help digest the information that we were receiving. So what was the plan that, that, uh, Don put in place and maybe both of you can kind of walk us through. Yeah, I guess from my standpoint, um, I was going to continue the chemo regimen that I was on um, for, I believe, another month or two. And then um, the plan was to get through the holidays. This was the fall of 2009. And then um, if everything went well in uh, early 2010, I was going to have my bone marrow transplant. So, Don, what had to go well? What were you looking for that would make the bone marrow transplant possible? And then what's the hope that the bone marrow, bone marrow transplant would accomplish? So the, the initial treatment was meant, um, number one, to get the myeloma into a remission. Um, but then, as importantly, um, there, there was a period where Matt was on dialysis, kidney dialysis. Um, his liver was not fulminantly failing but it was it was he was pretty sick and so part of the intention of that first treatment was to get his organs working as well as we could now we were blessed that you know by um the end of the fourth cycle or so his his chemo yeah his kidney tests were back to normal he wasn't on dialysis anymore his liver tests were almost normal and uh, i don't want to i don't want to steal his thunder with um the end of chemo but uh it was you want to Oh, is there, a, there. is there a story about the end of your chemo treatment? After my transplant? No, on Thanksgiving, <laughs> 2009. It being the last one. Was his last oh, chemo, yeah. yeah. On Thanksgiving Day? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the hot, you're, you, you came to work on Thanksgiving Day? <laughs> or And then, so part of the goal was that um, if we made it through all this, Matt was going to go home and get a Donato's pizza. <laughs> oh, okay. And, and uh, um on Thanksgiving Day. It was Day. Thanksgiving Day, yeah. <laughs> They're open on Thanksgiving Day? <laughs> okay. And did, did you get a pizza on Thanksgiving Day? If not that day, very <laughs> soon after, okay. yeah. <laughs> and, and what topping did you have on your pizza? Pepperoni guy. Oh, okay. Got it. Well, of course. Okay. So good. So, everything, so the, the, the initial targeted therapy 
worked well, mm-hmm. and that meant it, it, the bone marrow transplant could take place. Correct. So what exactly is that? The bone marrow comes from where? So we use Matt's own bone marrow. Um, we, we actually harvested, we, we harvested it through his veins, through uh, um, a technique with, with a machine called an apheresis machine. So there, there's a way um, that you can collect blood stem cells through your veins to, to spare having a surgery uh, to collect them. So in the old days, we would just someone would have to go to the operating room, get put to sleep, get flipped over, and a we, giant we would needle take about a gallon of bone marrow out. Um, but we did uh, Matt's collection through his veins um, after uh, four or five days worth of medicine. Um, was it? Did we do two days? Uh, just one. One day of collection got plenty of cells, and then um, do you have to do anything to the cells? There, yeah, there's a big process of of, um, of uh, ensuring that they're viable, they're usable, they're sterile, they're what we want. There's no myeloma cells in them. Um, so that takes, generally, that takes a week or two to get done. And then um, we made it through the holidays, through Christmas and New Year's, and Matt came in for his transplant in January. And, and then talking to others, before you get ready for the transplant, is that the, the time where you get the a larger dose of chemo to really... Uh, do it kill as many cells as you can, but that also kind of impacts the immune system, and that, then you get it, and then you get the bone marrow yeah. transplant. Yeah. So at the James, we we did close to 360 transplants last year, and um, we for for um, myeloma in particular, we're, we're probably one of the top five or ten centers in the country for this procedure. Having said that, I, I tell all my patients, I told Matt, if you're 99% sure you want to do this, we're not going to do it. You got to be 100. You got to be all in, 100%, you know, at the door, kung fu, ready to go, um, because we're basically going to take away your whole immune system. And uh, one of my uh, patients who was a farmer said, it's kind of like if you just pour weed killer on your whole field and plant new crops. And that's exactly what we did in Matt's case. So, Matt, what made you decide you wanted? to do this. Yeah, I think, especially for me, I felt like I was at a point in my life where I wanted to move on if possible from, from this diagnosis as, and have some sort of normalcy. And I looked at this as a, a means to an end to really help me, um, be able to pick my career back up, be able to, to do what the rest of my peer group was doing. That That's a great point. Cause you're all your friends. You, you graduated from Ohio state a few years before mm-hmm. your friends are getting married, doing careers, maybe starting to have families. What's that like to, instead of being doing the things that you should be doing at, at that age, you're, you're looking at, will I make it another couple of years? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's really strange to say, but I feel like it's the best thing that's ever happened to me because of the perspective that it's giving me. Um, it, it was hard to go through that and to feel like you're being left behind from your peer group. But I think at the same time, you know, looking 10 years later at this point that the perspective that I was able to get and the, the appreciation for the things that I do have, I I don't know that I would feel that sense of gratitude without having gone through this or at least as, as passionately as I do. It does certainly change your life and make you look at things in a different way. Mm -hmm. So how did the bone marrow transplant go? It was, it was hard. I think to Don's point, it's, uh, you have to have to be in for it. It, And and the hard part is that afterwards you're really sick for, for, I don't know how long you tell me. Yeah. Uh, it was probably a, a week and a half of where you're really sick. Um, you're 
you know, your, your counts bottom out, you've got no immune system, no energy, um, you are confined to a room and, uh, it sort of feels mentally like the walls are closing in, but then physically, like you don't want to do anything anyways. And just having to persevere. Um, and I remember, uh, the piece of advice that Don had given me was you can't look from day to day, but you have to break it into bigger chunks. And when I started looking at it in that way and saying, okay, a couple days from now, I'm going to start to feel better. And you keep layering that on, um, and you get through it. But, uh, it definitely wasn't something that was on my bucket list to go through. Right. No one should have to go through that. Don, what do you look for in that, that week, that 10 days as, as his immune system is, is trying to rebound? What are the, like, the signs, the, the things you look for to make sure things are working right? Yeah, I don't know. It's, um, th- things have changed today from 10 years ago, from when Matt had his. It's still nothing, you know, it's not a walk in the park. It's not um, um, rainbows and butterflies. It's, it's a tough procedure to get through. I think in the in the midst of the whole thing, when you're a week in and um, kind of you know you look at the clock and swear that the hands just went backwards, yeah. and um, there, there's a lot of it that's um, upstairs in your brain and your heart and your spirit that's just perseverance and um, you know from a medical side, from a science standpoint, you, you check the boxes, you do everything right, you double check, triple check, um, but a lot of it is just being there and reminding them why they're doing it, what we're doing this for. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel, even if you can't see it yet, it's coming. What was your support system during this? Your family, your friends, your doctors? Who, who yeah. was there? Yeah, absolutely. My family was huge. Um, Don and his team are incredible. Um, and also um, my now wife um, was my rock through all of this and, and really uh, another thing that helped me focus on getting past the, the present circumstances. I, I don't think I know this. At the time when you were diagnosed, had you just started dating? Were you already engaged? Where were you in your relationship? Yeah, so we, um, I had already been sick and we um, essentially got reintroduced and uh, were inseparable starting in the fall of 2009. So um, all through treatment, she was there. And so then you first started dating when you were already sick. So yeah. She's an amazing person uh, and caregiver. Yeah, the best. Um, and then I knew um, coming out of the transplant, if if I was able to achieve remission, um, that, that I absolutely was going to ask her to marry me. Wow. Okay. Did you did you talk to Don about that first to get some advice? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So obviously the the bone marrow transplant worked. So what happened? What did it do? The bone marrow tra- transplant. So um, <clears throat> I I think I mean it it could in in the big picture of things it couldn't have gone any better than it did. I think um, I I remember a night. That Matt had a high fever and was rigoring and was super sick. And what does that mean, rigoring? Kind of shaking oh, okay. in, in bed and teeth chattering and sweating. And um, it was a day or two before his his immune system engrafted before it started to work. And uh, I, I remember that was the night he told me, "You got to get me through this because I'm going to ask Kate to marry me." Wow! <laughs> wow. It's like two days later, his blood count started to come up and things turned around. And um, but. Um, you know, I think it was around the time Steve, you, and Matt met that we did his 90-day follow-up and found he was absolutely in a, a complete remission, um, you know, to the limits of our technology. We couldn't find an abnormal blood cell in his bone marrow. His blood counts look good. His, his lab tests look good. Um, What's that like when you get to deliver that news? Um, 
I mean, it's it's um, it's a privilege. It's a blessing. It, it's what you want to say to every patient. Um, I think um, it, it's. Um, I, I think the the best way to put it is it's gratifying. I can't take credit for it. I mean, it's it's the treatments we did were because patients before Matt went in clinical trials, and they were the ones who paid it forward to allow us to do for Matt what we did. And um, I think in a lot of ways, I'm just a witness to that. I'm just part of that. Well, that is definitely true that there were thousands of patients and dozens and dozens of doctors before you, but you're now one of those doctors moving the needle forward. So, Yeah, I think that's, um, it's hard to describe. I mean, I I think um, if you really listen to Matt's story and hear what happened and, you know, how Kate was with him, how his family was with him, um, where he is today with Campbell, with his daughter. Um, there, there's a big part of me that just I've taken a lot more from this relationship than I ever gave him. So, Wow. What was that like for you, Matt, when you got that news 90 days out, they do the scans and your, your cancer is gone? Yeah, I think it's, it's a, there's a, a sigh of relief there. Um, but it also, I think, you know, with checkups that I have now, there's always that anxiety that comes with a diagnosis like this. But, um, I've tried to look at it as each milestone. I'm just grateful and we'll address the next one when we get there. So, um, but that first one was big coming out of the transplant. That's absolutely true. And I'm I'm not sure if I was there that one or the one after when we first mixed, but I do remember going with you and it was just amazing to hear that news that you're, that everything came back great. And so of course, tell us at what point did you propose and how did you propose to Kate? Yeah. So I proposed to her not long after that 90 day checkup. I had, I think I purchased the ring in February. So I was still waiting on results and it was burning a hole in my pocket. Um, but, um, in the pictures from when I, uh, proposed, I still looked like I had been taking chemo. Um, but, uh, it was definitely a a huge milestone and, and something that I, that really helped get me through that entire time period. That is true. I mean, the the mental aspects and the, having the family support and in your case being in love and wanting to get better to get married that 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 is very helpful. Mm-hmm. So when did you get married? We got married in September of 2011. So coming up on eight years now. Wow. And and Don, were you at the at the wedding? Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> and you have a daughter? Yeah, we had a little girl in uh, January of 2017 named Campbell. Wow. And, and we were talking before we started actually recording your 10 year anniversary of your diagnosis is is coming up. Yeah, probably within days at this point. Well, again, congratulations. Thank you. And I know that um, in 09, the first Pelotonia, Don, you rode, you were too sick to ride. Mm-hmm. But in 2010, you Matt, you started riding and have, I think I've ridden every year since. Yep. And Don, you've ridden every year. And I know I think your wife rides with you. Mm-hmm. And do you have people you ride with? In yeah, my my parents have ridden in Pelotonia. Uh, my sister's ridden. Kate's ridden. So it's it's definitely become a a family event. So that's pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. The first year, um, uh, Matt came out of his transplant, and um, I mean the the pictures of him then. I mean this, his suit was like hanging off of him. He he had lost a ton of weight, and then. Um, by August, he he signed up, and we rode Pelotonia together that year. I actually encouraged Kate to ride that year with us, and uh, 
uh, we we've ridden uh, most of the rides together ever since, and um, it, it's just it's, it's amazing to, to think about. Well, well, thank you both for sharing this story. And and Matt, what what would you tell people? What how has this changed you, and how has this uh, kind of inspired you? I know through Pelotonian and through other things, but what how has this changed your life? Yeah, I think again the the perspective that it's given me has been huge. But um, to Don's point, also there's an intense responsibility now. Um, I feel as a as a patient and somebody who's been, um, you know, for lack of a better term, survivor through this to now that there were patients before me and there were people that weren't as fortunate as I was. And so fundraising and philanthropy is incredibly important to me, as well as um, if I ever, you know, had a relapse, um, doing a clinical trial, things like that are top of mind for me to be able to to help push that ball forward. And for Don, I know you become close with with not just Matt but with with most of your patients what is that like the emotional roller coaster you go through with with your patients mm-hmm. I think that's that's what attracted me to come to the James in the first place and what's kept me here is that that's that there's nothing special about me and the relationships I have that everybody has that at the James from the nurses and the PCAs and the staff and the nurse practitioners the pharmacists everybody's on the same sheet of music everybody gets it and um, it's very relationship-based, the, the whole um, clinic, the whole approach to care. Well, when you say there's nothing special about you, perhaps, Matt, I, I don't know, you might disagree with that? I definitely disagree with that. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a, good, that's a good point for us to end. So thank you both for joining us. And Matt? I'm going to knock on wood, and we'll, I'll, I'll see you at next year's Pelotonia. Absolutely. And we're recording this the Monday right after Pelotonia, so it's all fresh in our memories and all the emotions and seeing all the, the supporters and survivors. It was a great emotional and uplifting experience for all of us. Okay, so thank you for joining thank us. You. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.